Hey, church family, hope and pray that you are doing well. The Lord is blessing you and keeping you and making His face uh, to shine upon you. Um, it's a joy to dig into the Word with you this morning. If you would, if you haven't turned there yet, uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 11. You may have read it already in the home liturgy, but it's always great to have a physical copy of the, the Word with you as we walk through this passage. And as you're doing that, how do you think, I'll have you think about this for a moment. Um, I am somebody who is not good at waiting. I'm sure you can sympathize with me there. I'm naturally an impatient person. Uh, to give you an example, I, like many of you, am an Amazon Prime member, an avid Amazon Prime user. And one of the one of the benefits of Amazon Prime, as you know, is that free two-day shipping. Right? So you can order something in your home and two days later it's at your doorstep. But as you also know, if you're a Prime user, Sometimes there are delays, and if there's a delay, you get an email that tells you, hey, here's, here's that, the new time that your delayed item is coming. And I'll be honest with you, when I get those emails, my first thought is not, oh, that makes sense, we're in a global pandemic, or, oh, that's okay, I'll wait. My first thought is, are you serious? I'm an Amazon Prime member. Why, why is this late? Right? Because I don't like delays. And then I start checking that tracking number, wondering when it's going to be here. And here's the funny thing. It's usually not something I need within two days. It's usually a book or something that sits on my shelf for a few months anyways. But I just don't like waiting. I'm sure you can sympathize with that. Right? We don't like waiting in our cars when we're in traffic. We don't like waiting, a little more serious example, for uh, when uh, there's going to be a full reopening What's going to happen with this virus? Or even, even more of a heavy example, we, we wait and we don't like waiting for when is there going to be justice for our brothers and sisters of color in this nation. Right? And so waiting is something that's hard for us. And when we experience waiting and someone else makes us wait, we generally think that that person is careless toward us. They're not thinking about our wants and needs. So we see it, we take a personal offense to it, right? We see it as a slight against us. They're being careless. But what about when God makes us wait? As we look at the Bible, this idea of waiting is a theme we see all throughout Scripture. Take Job, for example. Job is a man, if you read the book of Job, who is waiting and wondering and longing for when his suffering will end. Or Moses, who flees Egypt and is out in the wilderness for 40 years waiting before God calls him back to deliver God's people. You think of the, the gap between the end of the, what we call the Old Testament, Malachi, to uh, the Gospels. Matthew is a 400-year gap of silence, no prophecy, no word from God to his people. It's a season of waiting. Even when Jesus is born, we wait for 30 years before we hear from Him. All throughout the Bible and all throughout our own lives, we see this theme of waiting. Now, when we look at John 11 this morning, we see the same theme. There is a group of people who know and love Jesus well, and Jesus intentionally delays in a very serious and sorrowful situation with them. And they start to wonder, just like we tend to think when we wait, does this mean he is careless toward us? But that's not the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We see in, the, in this text that God is at work in our waiting 
for His glory and for our good. That's how we can sum up these verses uh, this morning. And this is a big passage. This is uh, 44 verses, and so we're not going to have time to, to dig into everything, but hopefully as we walk through this story, you'll, you'll see this idea of God at work in our waiting. And as we walk through it, we're going to walk through it in four parts. First, we're going to see the loving delay of Jesus. Second, we're going to see the comforting claim of Jesus. Third, we're going to see the affectionate anger of Jesus. And then lastly, we'll see the sovereign power of Jesus. And then Lord willing, we'll come around at the end and apply these truths uh, to our cultural moment together. So the first thing we see in this passage, starting in verse 1, is the loving delay of Jesus. And this is in verses 1 through 17. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Okay, so we have a group of friends that's very close to Jesus, um, Mary and Martha, and that reference in verse 2 is to something that happens in chapter 12, where Mary uh, anoints Jesus with ointment, wipes his feet with her hair, and their brother Lazarus, who is gravely ill. So they call to Jesus, who's about 110 miles away, and the implication here is they're saying, we want you to do something about this. We know your power. We know that you can speak a word and he would be healed. So Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, our brother, is ill. They want him to heal their brother. Understandably so, right? But notice the response. We see this intentional delay as Jesus responds. First, he says in verse 4, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now stop right there. If you know the story, you know Lazarus dies. So what does Jesus mean when he says this illness does not lead to death? Well, really what he's saying here, yes, Lazarus will die, but this event, this will not ultimately end in death. It's a hint at the miracle that he's about to perform. And then secondly, he tells us that what he's about to do is going to serve to display his glory and the glory of God. Remember, in, in the Gospel of John, there is this ongoing theme of signs. What are signs? They're things that point to something else. So these miracles are signs that point to the person and work and glory of Jesus. So he's saying, this will be a sign that will display my glory and the glory of God. Then he says in verse 5, Now, Jesus loved Martha, John says, and, and her sister, and Lazarus. Verse 6, So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You catch how strange that is? We would think it would say, so because Jesus loved uh, uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he immediately dropped everything and booked it to Bethany. Or he immediately spoke a word and Lazarus was healed. But no, John tells us that he waited. He waited when he heard this. And he tells us, because this is somebody he loved, this is actually an act of love in some strange way. Now, we'll have to come back to that in a moment, but keep that thought in your mind. Then, verses 8 through 10, as we walk through this story, 
Jesus, after waiting for two days, tells his disciples, all right, let's go to Judea. Now, at first, they're hesitant because they just left there. And the disciples know and Jesus knows that is where Jerusalem is. And Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. And that is sort of like going into the lion's den, right? That's where everybody who wants to kill Jesus is. And so Jesus tells a quick parable that's really worth a sermon in its own right about how he is about doing the will of God. He is about walking in the light. And then Lazarus dies. He tells them Lazarus has fallen asleep. They don't get the, the, the metaphor there. They think, oh, he's going to wake up again. And so they misunderstand. But Jesus says, no, 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 he's dead. And by the way, uh, I'm delaying so that you may be there and believe. So he's saying this thing that's about to happen not only displays my glory, but it's also going to help you grow in your faith. So he says, Lazarus is dead. Let's go. And they begin this 110-mile journey, about a a four-day journey for for able-bodied men like Jesus and his disciples. And then look at verse 17 tells us, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, this is interesting. Why did did he wait so long? Because if you're doing the math there, right, it's about a a four-day journey. If Jesus would have left right when he heard the news... Lazarus would still be dead. So why did he delay? Well, most commentators believe that it's because there was a Jewish superstition at the time that taught that once you died, your soul would hover over your body for a few days. And there was still a chance after that death that your your soul could come back into your body and then you could be revived. That makes sense, right? Maybe there were people they thought were dead who weren't really dead. And so they kind of came up with superstition. Now, Jesus doesn't believe this superstition, but he knows the thought around him. So essentially to the Jews, there was dead and then there was like dead, dead. And Jesus waited to make sure that Lazarus was dead, dead. And I think the reason is because he wanted there to be no shadow of a doubt that what he was about to do was a miracle. It was a sign that pointed to his glory. The Jews believed after that time, the soul would leave, completely depart, and decay would set in. We, we know this is uh, true for Lazarus because when in a moment when the tomb is opened and Jesus wants to open the tomb, Martha's like, wait a second, it's going to smell. He's been dead for four days, right? The decay has set in. That's why Jesus waited that long. Now, let's tie all this together. What, what does this mean for us? What is Jesus showing here? Well, for his disciples, for Mary, for Martha, and for Lazarus, God is showing that he, he sometimes lovingly allows His people to go through seasons of waiting and sorrow so that He may display His glory to them and strengthen their faith. Right? Now, one of my favorite um, videos that you can find on YouTube, it's a psychological test with a group of four-year-olds. It's called the Marshmallow Test. Maybe you've seen it before. They get four-year-olds, a group of them together, and then individually, they put them in a room, there's a camera on them, and they put a marshmallow on the table. And they say, okay, now remember, this is a four-year-old. They say, okay, you can have this marshmallow, or I'm going to leave the room and you can wait. And if you don't eat this marshmallow, when I come back, you can have two marshmallows. Right? It's, a, it's an experiment about instant versus delayed gratification. Right? And you can imagine as you're watching these adorable four-year-olds, like some of them are sniffing the marshmallow. Some of them are like, you know, and most of them, what do they do? They eat it. 
because that mind cannot really fathom, wait a second, why would I wait? There's a marshmallow right in front of me. What would be the benefit of waiting for two marshmallows? Now, we, we laugh at that and say, that's cute, right? But the reality is, oftentimes we're like that in our relationship with God. We have a hard time seeing that in seasons of difficulty, in seasons of trial, there could actually be a long-term benefit of God displaying His glory in us, God working in us, God strengthening our faith. And so we get discouraged and we think, God, you're being careless towards me because you're making me wait. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Because I love you, you'll experience seasons of delay. You'll experience seasons of difficulty. And I will, through those, display my glory to you and strengthen your faith. We see this also in the book of James. James uses the uh, farming illustration. He says in James 5, 7 through 9, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the earthly and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Brothers and sisters, if you're in a season of waiting right now, if you're in a season of suffering right now, let me encourage you that Jesus loves you. He has a purpose for this and you will. Some of these things you may not understand. Some of these things you may not see until you get to glory and are face to face with Jesus, but you can trust that he has a purpose to display his glory and strengthen your faith. Jesus delays not because he's careless, but because he loves us and is working in the waiting. Now, that leads us to number two. The second thing we see in this passage is the comforting claim of Jesus. And, and this is in verses 18 through 27. So Jesus arrives in verses 18 and 19, tell us that many people are uh, also coming to, to mourn with Martha and Mary. This was a prominent family. They're close to Jerusalem. So there's a number of Jews and likely professional mourners there to mourn with them. And then verse 20 tells us that Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Do you hear the sorrow and lament in her voice as we read that? And this, is, this is a sorrowful rebuke toward Jesus. Right? She acknowledges his power, but she is doubting his timing. She's saying, Jesus, you could, heal, you could have healed him. I've seen you do it. If you were here, this wouldn't have happened, but you delayed. And you can hear her just thinking, why? Why did you delay? And notice first that Jesus doesn't respond to her by rebuking her for rebuking him, the Son of God. Notice how Jesus responds to her lament. First in verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, Martha hears this, and she hears Jesus referring to the, the future resurrection of God's people. This sort of, she thinks Jesus is comforting him with this general truth of, yes, one day those who are followers of God will be resurrected in the future judgment. So she doesn't fully understand here. She doesn't have an idea that Jesus is going to literally and physically raise Lazarus from the dead. Then Jesus directs his attention to sort of further prove his point to himself in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, 
Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he pointedly asks, do you believe this? So we have another I am statement of Jesus. Right Last week we saw I'm the door, I'm the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. And now he says, I am the, the resurrection. What does he mean by this? Well, we know this, these, are, um, these I am statements are revelations of his divinity. Right? He is the great I am. But what Jesus is saying here is also, listen, where there is death, I resurrect people. If you trust in me, death is not the end. You will come out on the other side alive. Then he goes on to say, I'm not only the resurrection, I'm also the life. He's saying, I give eternal life, not just in the future, Mary, uh, Martha. I'm not just talking about that future resurrection. I'm talking about eternal life now, something you can never lose. Do you believe this? And what Jesus is doing is responding to her sorrows with good, sound gospel doctrine. He's filling out her theology. Now, Martha believed, not every Jew at the time believed in a future resurrection. We know that the Pharisees did and the Sadducees didn't. So Martha believed, yes, there would be a future resurrection. And he, Jesus saying, yes, that's true, but it's much more than this. Do you believe that in me you can have eternal and abundant life now? You can have salvation And so see, Jesus is comforting Martha and he does the same with us in our sorrows. And he's he's encountering our waiting with the truth of who he is. Now, if we back up for a minute, that might actually seem insensitive, right? If someone's suffering and they're in the midst of sorrow and they're struggling and you speak gospel truth to them, you might say, is that the right time? Is Jesus, Jesus, should you have said that? He essentially responds with a, a theological lecture. But, but listen to this. This is not all that Jesus says. We'll see this in a moment. But our world is hurting right now, isn't it? We, we know every single person knows how Martha feels because we've experienced death. We've experienced suffering, which is uh, every suffering we face is a mini death, right? It's a result of the fall. And right now our world is hurting. Our world has always been hurting but it seems just so in front of our faces with this, the virus and with uh, racial injustice in our nation. And we have to ask the question as believers, okay, what does our world need? Do we need conversations with one another? Absolutely. Do we need empathy? Absolutely. Do we need kindness and unity? Absolutely. But friends, all of those things are in vain unless underneath it is the gospel truth that Jesus is our hope in life and death. Jesus is our hope for resurrection and eternal life. So Jesus gives Martha exactly what he knows that she needs. We need Christ. And Jesus is asking us, just as he pointedly asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that your ultimate hope in life and death is that he is the resurrection and the life? But again, this isn't Jesus' only response to those who are suffering and those who are waiting. And that leads us to number three. We not only see this comforting claim of Christ, this truth claim, we also see the affectionate anger of Jesus. Now in verses 28 through 32, we see Mary comes to Jesus 
with the exact same question, literally word for word as her sister Martha. Verse 32 says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Now we might have the question, why would Jesus respond to Martha one way and Mary the other? And friends, I think Jesus is giving a great example here of what it means to love people well. He knows these friends so well that he knows that in this moment, Martha needs gospel truth of the resurrection. And he knows that in this moment, Mary needs empathy and someone to just weep with her. But this is also a display of both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Jesus declares to Martha, I am the resurrection. It's a declaration of his divinity as fully God. But what does he do with Mary? He weeps with her. And more than that, this isn't just outward tears. He feels it deep inside. He's deeply moved. Right? There's a twofold response here of affection. And that word deeply moved, If you, have a, you probably have a note in your Bible on verse 33, a footnote that says a better translation is indignant. It's, it's anger. Now, why would Jesus respond in this way? He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? So is he sort of like putting on the waterworks, but inside thinking like, oh man, this is going to be great. Wait till they see what I'm going to do. No, that, would be, that wouldn't be genuine. Right? Jesus is truly feeling this sorrow and this indignation. So why is, why is he feeling this? What is it directed towards? Well, it's not just that Lazarus has died. He's going to raise him in a moment. His indignation, this affectionate anger is affection for those he loves who are affected by, and the anger is directed toward death itself. It's not just that Lazarus has died. Jesus looks at this scenario, and he is angry because he knows this isn't the way it should be. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. D.A. Carson comments on this passage and says, Death is such an ugly enemy. It generates endless and incalculable anguish. And for anyone steeped in the entire biblical heritage, death itself is a mark of sin. So Jesus is looking at this situation with righteous anger because death is affecting those he loves. It's affecting the creation he created. And he is saying this is not the way it's meant to be. And you can expand that to every suffering and injustice. Cancer is not the way it's meant to be. That personal sin that you are struggling with and you feel defeated by is not the way it was meant to be. Broken relationships, depression, poverty, racial injustice, right? systemic sin, rebellion against God. Jesus looks at this with a righteous indignation because it is not the way he created it to be. So he looks at all these things that oppose his glory and your good as those made in his image with a holy fury and affectionate anger and sorrow. Now, Augustine of Hippo, a North African bishop, said this, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger 
and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. What is Jesus doing here? He's looking at sin and rebellion against His glory and the good of His children. And He is angry because that's not the way it's meant to be. And that will, as we see in a moment, that will lead Him to courageously act to see that they don't remain as they are. Friends, I hope you're encouraged by this. This is a display of the heart of Christ for you in your sorrows, in your waiting, in your sin struggles, and in every injustice. He's not a God who's distant. He's not just throwing out truth bombs. What is He doing? He is getting in and weeping with you in your suffering. And notice how the Jews respond in verse 36. They look at this and they see, see how He loved Him. This is a, a beautiful display of the heart of Christ for those who are waiting and suffering. And He is righteously indignant toward all that threatens your good and His glory because He's affectionate for you. Also, this leads us to ask a question of ourselves. Do we, like Jesus, weep with those who weep? As Paul tells us to in Romans 12, 15. Do we enter into the sufferings and struggles of those around us? Do we bear one another's burdens as brothers and sisters in Christ and so fulfill the law of Christ? Galatians 6, chapter 2, or verse 2. Is that something that we do when our friends are suffering and experiencing seasons of delay and waiting and longing? But it also leads us to ask this question. Are you affectionately angry at the same things that Jesus is? See, our anger tends to be, at least mine does, tends to be extremely selfish. I would say 90% of the time, our anger is unrighteous anger. Yet that doesn't mean there's no such thing as righteous anger. Anger is an indicator of what we love and value most. And Jesus expressed a deep indignation towards all that threatened the glory of God and the good of His children. Friends, what makes you angry? It is right to be angered by injustice. It is right to look at the sin in your own life and have a holy anger toward it. Now, these mourners, as we read on verse 37, we read that they actually they saw His love, but they also doubted Him. It says, but some said of them, Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And that's a great question. It's good, Jesus, that you spoke truth. It's good that you're weeping with those who weep. But couldn't you have done something here? See, Jesus does do something. This anger leads him, this affectionate indignation leads him to act on behalf of those whom he loves. He is working in the waiting. That leads us to number four, the sovereign power of Jesus. We see this in verses 38 through 44. So Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he tells them to take away the stone. And Martha says, wait a second, he's been dead four days, decay has set in, it's going to smell. That's something you don't want to do. That indicates she doesn't, has no idea what he's about to do. And then verse 40, we read, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe 
that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped up in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus prays. And he, he, again, he says, I'm doing this so they would, they would see your glory and they would believe. And then by the word of his power, the same word that spoke creation into existence calls loudly to Lazarus. And what does Lazarus do? Lazarus comes out of the grave. And I love this because the, the narrative just ends. We don't hear anything from Lazarus, but can you imagine the conversations around dinner that night? Can you imagine Mary and Martha with their brother Lazarus? They were weeping and questioning Jesus and now seeing, oh, I see, Jesus, how you are working in our waiting. I've seen your glory. My faith is strengthened. Friends, Jesus does the same for us in our waiting. He delays because he loves us. And then he speaks the truth of the gospel to us, to comfort us. And he also shows this righteous indignation against all injustices and death and sin. And then he sovereignly works his power in our lives. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want to ask you two questions. First, this very same question Jesus asked Martha. Again, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And that if you believe in him, though this life will end, you will come out on the other side. You will live forever abundantly, joyfully in Him. That's the most important question. But also, do you believe, maybe you say, yes, I believe for a while, but do you believe that right now that God is working in your waiting for your good and for His glory? Whatever that pain, whatever that, that longing is, whatever that season of suffering, you can trust God's sovereign power and His love for you in Christ. Now, here's the second question. Will we love like Jesus loves. So first, do you believe this? And second, will we love like Jesus loves? Now, the chaos of recent weeks and months surrounding the, the death of, deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey, and friends, it's not just recent. Right? The list goes on and on from the beginning of our nation. The racial strife and injustice is staring us in the face. And as Christians, we have this question, how do we respond? And many of you I know there's probably a sense of confusion because you're hearing all these sorts of, of voices like Pastor Clint talked about last week, right? Are you listening to the voice of the shepherd? And as I, I look at different voices, I really hear three things that Christians feel pulled to do, three different voices. And the first says this, just speak. Just speak the truth of the gospel. I just preach the gospel because after all, uh, racism is a sin issue. It's a theological issue. So just preach the gospel. To which I would say, yes, amen. We're all about the gospel. We want to hear the gospel, learn the gospel. That's why we're reading this book by Dr. Mason together, right, on what this gospel application of race and, and injustice looks like in our church. But I would say, is that all we do? No, we don't just speak. Right? Now, the other voice says, weep. We don't need to hear your truth. You just need to empathize and get in and weep with those who weep. To which we say, amen, absolutely. We should empathize with those who are suffering and we should weep with them. But is that all that we should do? 
And then the third voice says, listen, you don't need to speak. You don't need to weep. The time has passed for that. You just need to act. Stop talking and get to work so we can see systemic change in our nation in the pursuit of racial justice, to which I would say, amen, we need to act. But is that all we need to do? And if you're like me, you hear all these things and many more from the world and you're confused and you're left asking, what should I do or what would Jesus do? And friends, this is the glory of the word of God ever relevant to our situation. Because when we look at John 11, what do we see? We see Jesus speaking gospel truth to Martha in her suffering as she faces the injustice of death. We see Jesus weeping with Mary as she's sorrowful over the injustice of death. And we see Jesus acting on behalf of Lazarus. Jesus does all three. And friends, that's what we're called to do as well. That's what it means to love like Jesus loves. If you pick one of those at the expense of the other, you've created a Christianity and a Jesus of your own making that's foreign to the Bible. Now, lastly, I'll say one last thing as we close. You say, well, wait a second, Kevin. You started off by saying this is all about waiting, right? Shouldn't we wait on the Lord? To which I would say, yes, amen. We wait on our sovereign God to move as He sees fit, but we don't wait passively, sitting on our hands, right? We wait actively. As Martin Luther King said in his famous I Have a Dream speech in 1963, he said there is a fierce urgency of now. And friends, also, we don't need to wait to do what God has already told us to do, which is to love our neighbor, which is what Jesus does so well in John 11. So church, let's believe Jesus who is working in our waiting for God's glory and our good. And as those who have believed the gospel of our crucified, buried, risen, and exalted Savior, let's then work to love others well, speaking, weeping, and acting on their behalf while we wait for Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that in a world where there are so many voices speaking, Your Word is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, and it speaks directly and relevantly into our lives and into our world. God, I want to pray for those right now who may be listening or watching and are experiencing deep season of painful waiting. I pray that they would see your heart for them. God, I, I pray that they would know that the ultimate hope is found in Jesus, and they would know that whatever you're doing, we can be confident that you are working to display your glory and you're working for their good. Father, I also want to pray for our nation and for the churches in our nation, including our own. God, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the Holy Spirit power to love those who are suffering as Jesus loved. God, I pray that you would give us the power to speak gospel truth and to situations of injustice of any kind, that we would weep with those who weep and that we would, we would act on behalf of them by your grace and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.